Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast with Owen Murph. Hello there, Owen. I'm Ken. Hey, Owen, how are you? I'm good. You've made a brave, brave call today. I'm impressed. I'm impressed what you put down in the running order for me here. Oh, go on. Such as it is. For the day that's in it, you're going to allow your football show to be hijacked by a totally different code. As Steve Thornton would call it. Two totally different codes. Two totally different codes. We're talking Ireland's elimination from the Rugby World Cup. But Ken, this is a football podcast. What gives? What are you doing, Ken, <laughs> you crazy bastard? Well, look, Owen, uh, we were all there yesterday in Cardiff to see the uh, boys in green. Mm-hmm. Uh, myself and Kieran were there down in that corner of the uh, Millennium Stadium where Argentina ran Argentina. in that first try. Argentina. For- we have a Richie. We have a Richie Sadler's Argentina oh, soundboard clip. That's amazing. And we got to see um, a real. We got a real good look at the Argentinian players mm. celebrating right we in did. front of us. We did uh, that. That first try. The first try scorer thrust his groin. He really in did. A, in a, a very quite provocative fashion, mm. it, basically in our faces. Yeah, yeah. That was. We were. Le- we were. It was. He told us in no uncertain terms. We were nose to groin with that particular Argentinian ball <laughs> centre. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you know, and, and, and it went on. And I was struck by the eerie resemblance of this entire occasion to the match between Ireland and Croatia at Euro 2012. Yeah, there's a bit of that. It was like, it was deja vu. It was the whole thing was exactly the same. It was tens of thousands of... Irish people turning up with their um, with their leprechaun hats and their pints and their happy, simple faces and crowding into a stadium, uh, you know, massively outnumbering the uh, opposing uh, supporters and singing the fields of Athen Rye and, uh, and kind of convincing themselves that they were going to do it. We're going to do it. That was that was the feeling of, of the Irish fans, including including me and Kieran mm. Murphy. Because I don't exempt myself from this. I was a, I was there as a supporter. I was not there as a journalist. I was there 
holding a uh, pint of beer. I had my glass of beer. Uh, what, are my, the, what are the real Pringles. what are the real features in, <laughs> what are the many features of the Millennium Stadium that lends itself to a good atmosphere is the non-stop supply of beer if you're willing to pay enough no problem getting it at any stage bringing it up you can you can probably go on the pitch with a beer if you really want mm. it at the Millennium Stadium as long as just, well maybe this is just a sideline you don't you don't really be on Stewards, the field play. not a problem there I was <laughs> whatever try, trying not to spill too much of this beer on my on my own trousers and the the fans are singing the fields of Athenry and then the game started and immediately. The opponents sliced through Ireland and scored, and I was thought this is just like what happened in the Euros. That Rose Manzukic after three minutes, oh, a horrible goal. They scored after three minutes to try, and then they scored another another try almost immediately after that. And it was like, but not only they also played for ten minutes in a way which m- made it dawn on everyone in the stadium that they had a chilling level of technical superiority to us. It was like, hang on, we're actually completely outclassed here by this team. <laughs> I would say I wasn't expecting this. I would say that there were, the levels of expectation were rather different. The Euro twenty twelve expectation was, well, you know, we've always showed up at the big tournaments. So despite, ah, no, there was total expectation we were going to give it a go. Y- w- did, well, do no. Croatia? No, I'll tell you what no. it was in Euro twenty twelve. It yeah. was we we did Croatia had that good. You said can you said that we were convincing ourselves we're going to beat Argentina. I actually thought I, I wouldn't agree with that phrase. I think we were nearly trying to convince ourselves that actually there's a small chance we mightn't win this. Argentina aren't that bad, you know. Even though yeah. like there was this weird idea that we had to talk them up, even though yeah. we were missing almost all of our best players. And they were missing one centre, and that was about it. Uh, and they tend to beat us at World Cups. Despite all that, we still felt we were massive favourites in the back of our minds. A lot of Irish people did. and we were having to, Whereas against Croatia, I think what it was, was Murph, remember how insane the group was. We knew we had to beat Croatia. And, yeah. and we always do well at major tournaments. Yeah. So we thought this is the one, by logic, we're going to win. The yeah. one certainty here is that we won't disgrace ourselves at a tournament. Exactly. So that's that's a certainty. That's so, a given. So you beat the so, Croats. You move on. You get. A, you try to get a draw with Spain. Spain. But if that doesn't fair, happen, probably probably Spain not probably a level above Spain, us. But Italy, to be honest, you know, it, it, well, struggling. Three points first game, right? Then you're in the group. You win the yeah. first game. You're in the group. Yeah. You know, you're right, you're right in the mix. Then yeah, yeah. Spain probably a little too good for us. Yeah. Italians, who knows, they might have qualified already. I don't know why we're all speaking we like Alan. We got a good record against Italy. Naked roll. I don't know why. The knockout stages, who knows, Ed? We're all speaking Naked like Alan. <laughs> Without penalties. Apparently, we're all speaking like Alan Shearer. Win the Well, look. Before the tournament. We, what do we do? We sang the fields of Athenry. We, we sang the fields of Athenry to try to support, uh, support and inspire the team. And then, the Irish team fought back. The outgunned and outclassed Irish team bravely summoned... Uh, the last shreds of their resistance and hurled it in the faces of Argentina and fought back, or slash Croatia, and fought back. And it was Luke Fitzgerald and Sean St. Ledger uh, scoring the uh, kind of equalisers. You know, I mean, mm. Ireland didn't actually equalise against Argentina, but it was pretty bloody close, right? I mean, we effectively equalised the game and looked as though we were back in it. And the fans sang the fields of Athen Rye to express their joy. And then we got completely destroyed all over again. Mm. We were destroyed for a second time by our ruthless and superior opponents who danced on the wreckage of our dreams. And the Irish fans looked around the stadium and suddenly there was all these Argentinians there. Where did all these guys come <laughs> there from? There was a bit of that, yeah. They all, they all suddenly come out of the woodwork. Patch, little patches of Argentinians all over the stadium. And what are the Argentinians doing? They're all 
bouncing up and down. They're kind of uh, rhythmically swinging their you know pieces of cloth over their heads. Whatever they, they've obviously all got a special supporter. They cloth. unzip their jackets, you know, and reveal they were Argentinian fans after seventy. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Look, they all have this special supporter cloth they used in Argentina to to do that rhythmic sort of uh, circular. Yeah, yeah. And whether they're singing on the chant, the chants number one varied, lots of different songs. Number two, they all sound amazing. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of rhythm. There's a kind of they're putting on a real show. I was reminded also of the Croatian fans in Poznan mm. and their awesome repertoire of call songs. and response, one stand to the other. Yeah. remember that? Absolutely amazing. Sounds amazing. Booming one. out from one stand to the other. <laughs> you know, I mean, God knows what they were saying. <laughs> God knows. Not all of a kind. I'd you know, say. good thing. You know, UEFA turning a blind eye to some of those. Yeah. those if those only someone in UEFA spoke, uh, spoke Croatian. <laughs> <laughs> thankfully, <laughs> thankfully, not too many in neon fluent and servo Croat. But you know, it was they, they, you know they had flares and sort of banners and everything. We, we leprechaun has. like a great green herd of cattle mooed out the fields <laughs> of Athenry again uh, until the Argentines uh, raced through to, to cr- uh, crush this woman last night. At which point, our spirit was broken. We couldn't even sing the fields of Athenry. Yeah. We just started leaving because people started thinking about the train. It was like, oh, you know, there was traffic chaos on the way up here. It was bedlam. I better beat the rush. Uh, it doesn't look as though Ireland, regrettably, <laughs> are going to come back into this game. So it was just, everything about it was just so similar. The the kind of dramatic beats of the thing, the kind of the blithe innocence of the conviction that we were going to you know, not be destroyed. And, you know, and then the sort of, Horror, dawning horror of what happened, but most of all, Owen, the fields of Athenry. The fields of Athenry is a situation that has got to stop. When are, when will we be free of this hymn of doom? Is what I'm asking you, Owen. Mm. Why is it that every time tens of thousands of Irish people gather to watch an Irish team or athlete uh, compete in any sport, this song is the <clears throat> only song. That, that gets sung. Can I just make it uh, com- abundantly clear to everyone listening that this it's not the Athenry in Galway. It's actually in Athenry in County Down uh, because Athenry is actually inland. And if we all, we all only know one verse. The second verse where, you know, they hop on the ship. Yeah. It's a port. So it's the Athenry in County Down. Oh, just I- to make it absolutely clear. I mean, you know, it's being... It's, it's been uh, uh, seconded and used for it, its own use by many... Different uh, sets, sets of fans. But the Hymn of Doom has nothing to do with County Gold. I just want to make that. <laughs> I, I honestly had no idea about that. Well, I just assumed they'd, they'd take him down the road to whatever the local port was. But, like, I, I find it amazing, actually. We have so many of these big sports events. I've been to so many of them. Different sports, you know, football, rugby, uh, Gaelic football to a lesser extent. Um, but, you know, uh, even that, to say, the Conor McGregor fight, okay, there was a huge Irish crowd at that. And, and it's the same stuff. Now, okay, they didn't really sing the Fields of Athens Ryan in Las well, Vegas. There's Stand Up for the Boys in Green. Stand, stand Up for the Boys in Green. Shoes Off for the Boys in Green. So, that's the, so there are three songs. And there's also... In, in and Come Pesce On, You Boys in Green. Well, that, yeah, but they're all the one song, Owen. <laughs> come, oh, no, Come On, You Boys yeah. in Green. Come On, You Boys in Green. Stand Up for the Boys in Green. No, st- which is Go West. Yeah. Uh, come On, You Boys in Green is... is uh, yeah. Uh, those were the days. And then there's... Uh, and in rugby, they, there's also the one where you just say Ireland over and over again, right? But that's not really a song. Now, I look at the Argentinian fans, the Croatian fans. These are people who know how to support a team, right? They have got... They have got... Why is, why is it that we 
have so many of these events with so many big crowds. Literally, I don't think there's another country in the world that has such a high per capita representation at bandwagon sporting events as Ireland. No, I would we, say we have are like we are the, we are the kings, the global kings of going to big time sporting events en masse and singing songs. How is there never any development of that culture? Why is it always the same? Stuff. What? Where are the new songs? Like this has been going on for years. Kenny, support on sport. You're forgetting about um, Depeche Mode, which is uh, a new that's for in fairness to, soccer fans. to in, in at the at the football matches. Um, the the kind of guys in the you know kind of why big singing section behind the goal are trying to do something there, but you can hear that the chants are so rarely taken up. You can hear them. Faintly, kind of drifting across the air. For you know, if you're if you're sitting where I'm usually sitting, which is high up, but where the press box is, you can just about hear this. But it's not so that the crowd is joining in. You know what I mean? The crowd just never seems to pick up anything new. And it's not as though Ireland is a country that's short on songs. You know what I mean? There's and it's not short on sporting events, which has big crowds. You know, with big crowds at where they could maybe practice and come up with something a bit better. I'm just looking at the Argentinians and Croatians and thinking to myself. We can talk about our team. We can talk about our team being made to look bad by technically superior opponents. You know, youth development, what's that all about? Are our children playing too much computerized games? But when are we going to look at the men and women in the mirror, Ron, and ask ourselves, is this really the best we can do? Feels of Athen Rye was good enough against France, Ken. But we've probably got to move on from the chanting at some stage. <sighs> I don't know. It's, I think it's... You know, we've all got to take have a look we at all, ourselves. Have we all done our jobs? Son? I don't know if we have. I, I think it's a, I think it's an indictment of our culture, more <laughs> so than more so than the fact that Argentina, apparently, out of its playing population of six hundred, is able to produce fifteen uh, superior rugby players. I, I don't know what the actual playing population is in Argentina. I mean, it's it's it's, it's probably bigger than that, right? Wait, you were being you were being a little facetious uh, there, were you? I don't know. I think I think uh, there were you know anyway. We're going to talk to Zeon Fanning a little bit later on about the... There seems to be a perception that the rugby players are... The rugby team is gets a little bit of a softer ride when it's eliminated from tournaments than the soccer team does. So we'll chat to Dion about that. Yeah, we'll talk, we'll talk about that. Um, given, the, given the kind of crushing deceleration of that bandwagon, uh, the response is, is quite sympathetic. I think everyone is, is feeling... It's as though we're all feeling the same thing. We're in sympathy with the players. It's not a question of... You know, let's say at the opposite end of the scale would be Brazil after the seven-one, <laughs> right? That's that's the opposite end where everybody is ostentatiously supporting the opposing team. I mean, if Ireland had been, if the Irish fans had been cheering those last two Argentinian tries, that's what and booing Paul O'Connell every time he appeared on screen. <laughs> that's basically what the Brazilians ended up doing in there. And so that's the other extreme. But uh, what what else is going on? Ireland obviously joining us, Bosnia. In the uh, Euro playoffs, so you I'd, know. I'd just like to say that Ken Early was on this. Like we were walking into the ground yesterday, and he was booking his flights to Bosnia. I mean, maybe there's an element of a man hedging his bets there, uh, going into the Rugby World Cup <laughs> quarterfinal. Thing. Well, not going to put all of my eggs in this uh, rugby basket. <laughs> but nevertheless, I do. Uh, I, I, I must say, I, I, I was impressed by your dedication to the boys in green. Well, look, you know, I mean, you got to book those flights as soon as it's known, or you're going to end up paying a lot more for the same flights, right? Mm-hmm. Is that how it works? I, I think suppose, Ken, but I mean, I've, I've, I've st- still, I, was, I, was, I admired your, your focus, your intensity. Uh, we, we've, got, uh, we've got a few problems to negotiate, 
says Martin O'Neill. Uh, a couple of suspensions. Obviously, Walters and O'Shea are going to miss the first leg of this, which is in uh, Bosnia on the 13th of November, with the second leg being, that's a Friday evening, with the second leg being on Monday in Dublin. Um, if there's any slight advantage to be had, maybe it's our second game being played in Dublin, Martin O'Neill reckons. Um, that said, we need to perform in Bosnia to make sure the second game means something. So, I mean, I don't think any of the teams in, in that out of that four were hugely intimidating, were hugely terrifying for Ireland. No, there was the Zlatan issue that we mentioned last week. Well, it was, we mentioned as though it's some sort of <laughs> some sort of unique theory that we wouldn't really want to be playing against Trent Trent Mark Zlatan Ibrahimovic, not just for his talent, but for the consternation. I was just a bit spooked by how we defended against Poland and Lewandowski. Mm. And I know we, we, we've played against Sweden before, and particularly in the away game, they didn't cause us too much trouble. They did beat us 2-1 at home. I just, the, the way we seemed to be during that game, if I just, just sort of felt like one guy, whatever about what Zlatan does, just the presence of a player like that can cause... Then again, Thomas Müller was up front for Germany. Mm-hmm. It didn't cause us that much grief. No, and, and Bosnia have Edin Dzeko, who's uh, 44 international goals, I think, in about <laughs> half as many games as Robbie Keane. Forget, keep forgetting to have Edin Dzeko. Um, so they do have some quality players. I mean, technically, they're, they're obviously a better team than we are. You know, there's no doubt about that. The question is whether we can, you know, do what we do. I mean, we beat Germany. They're a better team than us. Technically, the technically better team does not necessarily win. So, you know, I mean, it, maybe the maybe the trip to Ukraine would have been the tougher draw. Um, but I don't think this is an easy draw. I think I think Ireland can win and Bosnia can win. So it's going to be interesting anyway. Uh, something to look forward to next month. The um, one of the players who might be involved. In that is James McLean, who was suspended, obviously, uh, for the match against Germany, but returned in Poland and returned, well, was playing for West Brom against Sunderland, his old club. Did you see any of what happened? It's just become, I've been reading about it, Ken, to be honest, with all the travelling and all that. Uh, I'm only catching up with it this morning. Um, I just, James McLean is becoming one of the most famous names in English football. Yeah, he is. He really is, uh, generally not for the right reasons, or not for... Uh, not for reasons of popularity, mm. but maybe explain if people haven't seen what happened at the weekend. Well, it's, a, it's an amazing thing McLean has managed to do here. He has contrived to end up being described by his own manager as not the sharpest tool in the box. That's not being disrespectful to him, yeah, Tony Pulis says. I would have thought that actually was quite disrespectful to him. I mean, I'm not really sure of any situation in which describing one of your own players effectively is stupid is not disrespectful. No, I describe that as a stupid comment. It's certainly not a sharp comment by Tony Butis. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of an odd one. I mean, he obviously thinks James McLean, it'll be water off a duck's back. Uh, I mean, maybe he, maybe he means he hasn't been the sharpest tool in the box in this instance. And you could say he's certainly not the most diplomatic tool in the box. <laughs> you know, if, if there are shades of diplomacy among the, the tools in the toolbox... James McLean will be the least, the rudest. How long has this toolbox analogy gone on for the whole podcast? <laughs> it could get tricky. So the Phillips head screwdriver is not that. Di- you know, I mean, you can either use them or you can't really. Yeah. You know, there's no middle ground there. Yeah. You know, you've got there are certain situations where a Phillips screwhead driver is just Phillips it's head just screwdriver useless. is utterly useless, out of place, completely pointless to have them in there. Mc- <laughs> McLean is, is of course not like a Phillips head screwdriver in that way. Uh, but he ran over to, basically, West Brom beat Sunderland. The Sunderland fans have been having a go at James McLean. 
if you can remember James McLean uh, when he left Sunderland, it didn't really seem to be that huge an issue at the time. This the, the fact that it was all, or certain, you know, the stuff to do with the poppy, but it does actually seem to have been quite a big deal. I remember actually being at a game between Fulham and Sunderland, where I'm pretty sure the Sunderland fans uh, were having a go at James McLean, and it was around the time of one of the poppy things. And this, this was when McLean was playing for Sunderland. You know what I mean? So obviously it wasn't um, it wasn't great. There's a lot of, I mean, wherever you go in the UK, there's going to be lots of people uh, who you know, have worked in the forces or have relatives who do, you know, I mean, at the rugby yesterday, there was there was a big contingent from, it seemed like every force was represented. I was trying to work out what some of them were. Such a range of uniforms on display uh, from the guys. I mean, luckily James McLean didn't have to deal with that kind of stuff on a regular basis. But essentially they were, they were singing uh, songs, you know, the uh, about the IRA, you know, anti-IRA songs, let's say and uh, God Save the Queen. This is Sunderland fans at a Premier League game against West Brom. So this is kind of what James McLean's, this is his achievement in a way, to bring this back, to bring this back to life, to fan the flames of this, you know, ancient... When, when were you hearing English football fans singing about the IRA? Well, they do now, when McLean is playing. And McLean, uh, as soon as West Brom have won it, once is going over to the fans to give them a bit of, yeah, you know, and he, he actually, I'm pretty sure, deleted the photo of, of the, the photo of him doing this later. Uh, celebrating, whereupon the Sunderland players, who it looked to me as the, I mean, I don't know if they've got strong views. Maybe they do. Maybe Danny Graham has Danny Graham has real strong views on this. But it looked to me as though he wanted to be seen by his fans, you know, defending them against this. By, so, so there was then a confrontation of pushing and shoving, and then all the usual questions about McLean, uh, culminating in Tony Pulis's comment that he's not the sharpest steel in the box although Tony Peel, Tony Pulis did also say he's a smashing lad he played really well today he settled in really well the lads are really taking to him he is a really nice lad yeah it was one of these loose comments at the end of a compliment mm. which was a, a little bit needless I thought that's not being disrespectful to him <laughs> uh, but what is being disrespectful certainly is Michael Gray the former Sunderland player tweeted uh, well he said positive signs in the first half Big Sam know what he has to work with now dot 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 exclamation mark James McLean, what a prick. Now that is like, I mean, Gray is working supposedly in the media. I suppose his his uh, his job essentially is to be a cheerleader for, you know, the, for Sunderland. But that is, yeah. I think, completely wrong. From someone from someone in his position uh, to speak like that about someone is, is just, uh, I mean, you can draw, you know, you know what I think about it. Yeah, yeah, Torre has given a Barn burner of an interview, apparently. Yeah, he has. Um, uh, Yaya Toure has done a big interview in Le Keep, in which he has talked about a few of uh, the little issues he's been having, um, mainly with the English media, but not not just with the English media. Uh, he complains that they are always minimising his achievements uh, and uh, and making a big deal out of it whenever he doesn't play well. Um, for instance, he says, uh, you know, I scored 26 goals, uh, 20 in the Premier League season before last. Nobody said anything. I, uh, I Then the next season, I only scored 12. I did have to go to the African Cup of Nations for two months. So I missed two months of the season. And they criticized me for not scoring as many goals as the season before. What's going on? Um, uh, I get the impression I'm an inconvenience here. Uh, we should speak just as much about the positives as the negatives. Now, us, uh, us Africans, when we do good work, we like to be recompensed for that, recognized. Um, so uh, he complains about the fact that they're always um, com- uh, talking about how much he gets paid. 
um, uh, and then attacks on him personally. There, were, there have been a few kind of tabloid stories revolving around Yaya Toure's personal life. Obviously, nobody likes when that happens. Um, but he, he says, he has a quite strange line where he says, everybody thinks that I'm happy. I've won titles, I've earned a lot of money, but no, I'm not happy. Uh, Toure, making like a million euros a month, uh, says that this is not... Uh, He's he's less happy now than when he started out. It's it grim. Does seem like a guy who needs quite a bit of love and attention, Neyatori. Well, he's he's kind of sensitive, but like he, you know, does he have a point though? He does. Get, I think he does. He's the one who, when they play badly, I think he does get praise actually when he plays well. I, th- I think that part of it's wrong, but he seems to be the one that is constantly getting hammered when they when they play badly. Mm. It's as though because it looks so easy for him, he's so athletically gifted and so skillful for a guy of his size. He can do so much when he's playing well. That when there's, there's something about I don't know if it's his body language or something when things aren't going well for the team he's the easiest guy to pick out oh yeah yeah doesn't care today and then if you look at this the, I remember it was one game what the game was it looked like he'd done nothing and he was taken off or there was the stats come up about the running he'd done and it was I think the most of any many years it just looks as though he's he's not really putting himself mm. about sometimes I think so I mean he but although we should mention that it's not just confined to England that he feels this is also he he complains a lot about the Ivory Coast and the way he's treated there. Um, and he says uh, essentially that he's the most insulted player, the most unloved individual. Uh, but he says, I did my job. I won the African Cup of Nations with my colleagues. And suddenly the most unloved individual in the Ivory Coast became the best love for a little while. Um, of course, there are people who appreciate me, but these people didn't express themselves uh, so much, contrary to those who hate me. And that hurts. I think kind of some of the problem here has to do with just the way that people's minds work. People are much more sensitive to insults than they are to praise, I think, generally. You kind of an insult s- sticks out a bit more. Um, praise after certain, you know, uh, what is that line, you know, the first line of Anne Cranor, all, uh, uh, all happy families are alike, each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. It's like all compliments basically sound the same, but <laughs> insults, you can remember the individual ones like till the end of your life. And when you're in a position like Yaya Toure, who is you know, let's say the the greatest African footballer of his generation, um, the, you know, one of the main players that's probably the best club in the Premier League, you do, are, you, are, you become the focus of a lot of attention. And if a certain percentage of that is negative, then after a while you start to think as though the world really is against you. You know what I mean? And I suppose, yeah, Torres, it sounds as though his personality is a little bit, he's a little bit downbeat anyway. Yeah, it's a weird thing that, say, if you're talking about, uh, to bring it back to rugby for a second, you know, you hear a, a load of people being praised for their unseen work. Yaya Toure does no unseen work. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, like, all of his game is, are things that are just obviously brilliant. Yeah. Anytime he does something brilliant, it's it's staring you directly in the face. Like, look at this guy. This guy is absolutely unbelievable. Yeah. And so his uh, successes are wide open. And as a result, anytime he's not doing that, you can be reading the newspaper and watching Man City game and then realise, well, Yaya Torre hasn't gotten a 50-yard run and stuck it in the top corner. I don't see his name on the score sheet. He mustn't have done anything. Yeah, it's a, he's a, a weird player in that respect in that it's not the level of consistency you're looking for. You're looking for a number of brilliant moments per game. Yeah. And if he does that, then he's playing brilliantly. If he does, And if he doesn't, he's... You know, seen as still though. Have you seen how much he gets paid? I oh, know it's, un- it's unfair to say that. It's not <laughs> his. It's not his fault. He didn't offer himself the contract. No, uh, I mean, speaking of unseen work, uh, uh, Jose Mourinho 
has not been seeing a lot of work from Eden Hazard, it turns out. Uh, he hasn't even been seeing the unseen work no, from Eden Hazard. He's usually good at spotting that unseen work. Uh, and it turns out with Hazard, he hasn't. Uh, and he dropped him on the weekend. So this is kind of sensational, really. Hazard's a player of the year. You know, last, last season player of the year. And the reason Chelsea won the league. He, he won them the title in the second half of the season. He scored a lot of goals in 1-0 wins. He was dragging them through games that they otherwise weren't going to win. Now he's dropped. And Mourinho says, I left out Hazard because we are conceding lots of goals. Which is <laughs> like, wow. Uh, I mean, Jesus. When does the manager blame that on one player ever? He didn't say, I left out Ivanovic because his mistakes have directly, you know, caused eight goals. To end up, you know, he, he's never said anything like that. I've dropped the goalkeeper because the striker is not scoring any goals. The goalkeeper keeps throwing balls into the net, and I find that that's, you know, not good for our uh, goal uh, concession situation, so I have dropped the man. No, I left out Hazard because we're conceding lots of goals. We need to defend better. When you don't have the ball, quality means nothing. And what means, this is what he does. He beats himself on the chest like a gorilla, and he says, you have or you don't have. It was just a tactical decision, leaving super quality on the bench, but bringing tactical discipline and hoping the team could be solid. William and Pedro did amazing defensive work and allowed the midfield players to be very comfortable. I continue that way, or he comes in our direction, the Hazard comes in our direction, and tries to replicate the same work that William and Pedro did. So basically, Hazard is not getting back in the team mm -hmm. until he does what William and Pedro are doing, which is incredible because... Chelsea's whole setup last season was based on Hazard being the only free man, being the guy who could, be, because he's brilliant, it makes sense to allow him to find the positions where he's most dangerous. And everyone else is, is basically a defender. Uh, and apparently, even that's too much now for Chelsea to do. But I mean, Mourinho, we, you know, it, it kind of happened last week, so we're not really going to bother talking about it. But he, he, you know, he's got a book out now. It's yeah. kind of like a picture book. And uh, he did this in, like press conference in Waterstones. Super launch, yeah. Yeah, which was just meant to be about the book. And like the publisher had sent out an email to all the journalists saying, "Look, you know, this isn't one of your, you know, city football press conferences. We're just here to talk about the book today. Is everyone okay with that?" And the, all they talked about was like the FA charge against Mourinho. And he was just having a massive go. He's like, "That's a disgrace. It's a total disgrace." You know, oh, of course I'm going to contest it. You know, like completely. Um, openly uh, attacking the FA like in response to whatever charge they have against them. Yep. Um, so anyway, uh, we'll continue to follow what's happening there. That's it from Kennedy's report on sport. A flame hair, a flame hair, flame hair, truth, Mr. Kennedy. Every so often, I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around to bite someone. John Hayes, I'm talking about, Aaron. Yeah. John Hayes. Now, I always thought that was ridiculous. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Brendan Rogers. On sight. That's where it goes from. On sight. Thanks a lot, Pepe. How much do I give a fuck? Fair to say, anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let me show you right now for you give it up. Dion Fanning is ready to talk to us, Dion, about your own. Well, what did you, as a football man who, like uh, quite a lot of Irish football journalists in the last month, has been pressed into writing a little bit about the rugby, what did you make of Ireland's heartbreaking Cardiff? Well, I suppose I was as disappointed as, as, as lots of people um, because you do get, you know, the, the emotion before the game and, you know, when, when Ireland's call has been played and all this, you, 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 get, you, get, you get excited and you think this is going to be a, a great uh, Irish sporting occasion, and 
then it, it 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 doesn't it doesn't unfold like that, and uh, it's it's a strange you know it, it, there seems to be a strange reaction. I, I like I think it's very important not to kind of get sucked into the kind of football versus rugby because so many people watch watch all sports in Ireland uh, with with kind of great enthusiasm, and there's a kind of a tendency to say, and you know this happens on on you know you saw people yesterday tweeting things about you know the. Uh, dislocated finger being put back on on the pitch and saying you wouldn't see footballers doing that and this kind of, you know, putting up with that kind of pain uh, and all this kind of nonsense. So it's, uh, but there is, there is a, thing, a very, a very different reaction to uh, uh, sort of rugby, rugby failure and, and Irish, our, our comparative failure and Irish comparative failure. Do you think so? Well, what's, what's the difference that you've spotted? Well, I, I, I uh, like, what, what was the difference between Ultimately, what is the difference between Ireland's Rugby World Cup and Ireland's uh, performance in the in the Euro, Euro 2012? Well, we won four games before against against music. teams. Did we beat any? Like it's, it, it's well, to me, it looks like Ireland beating Georgia in football. Like when they when they come up against uh, first bit of quality, real quality opposition, um, they they lose. So I don't I don't see uh, I don't see, I don't see it as anything. I thought there was a. Like Euro 2012, there was a there was a kind of national hysteria. It was very strange watching people heading off in, in the tens of thousands to, to see Canada, Ireland play Canada and Romania, and these being covered as if they were actual uh, meaningful fixtures when they were essentially just more warm up games. Um, there was a game against France, though, and I think I don't think the comparison with Euro 20. If you're going to make a comparison with soccer, I mean, it'd probably be more with. The last few days, the Irish team were were obviously lauded when they won the game against Germany, um, and there seems to be this idea that the Irish team don't get a fair crack at the whip. But when they perform and when they qualified for the Euros, they got plenty of um, plenty of encouragement, plenty of slaps in the back. But the Euros is an unmitigated disaster from start to finish. Whereas this at least had a feel good factor for a few games. We beat one good team in France before actually losing to to Argentina. And I, I don't think I don't know. Have, do you think the team is being glorified in defeat? Because I've Seen plenty of analysis talking about how badly they underperformed yesterday. I've seen some analysis saying that. I don't think. No, I don't. I think. I think. I think there's a difference in coverage, which is is, is understandable too. Because I think there's a, uh, I, and I would I would I would say some of this is the fault of of the FAI and how they uh, and how they promote promote the team. Because, for example, the day after Ireland beat Germany, all media was cancelled by the FAI. Uh, they surrendered. They surrendered the kind of weekend, the Saturday sort of back back pages to rugby. Um, when the country was talking about football, uh, no nobody nobody could be found to speak about it from from uh, from 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 the FAI or from the team, which is kind of an extraordinary media decision. Whatever about cancelling training after the game, which is which is the reason given. Uh, I don't I don't see why that happens. Whereas rugby is far more aware of. Of its responsibilities, um, the, the game is marketed better. They are, all, you know, the, the players are kind of local heroes. They're in, they're, they're in Ireland, most of them, uh, and there is a proximity to them, which is, which makes makes people feel a greater affinity with them. So I think there is understandable reasons for it. But uh, when the football team fails, uh, I think they get they get criticised. Um, they get criticised very very quickly and. Um, and, and I, I do think there is a difference. Yeah, I mean, you could. See, we all know that the we all have friends, I'm sure, who hate watch either the rugby or football matches uh, in the hope of seeing the team fail. 
uh, and then being able to to jump on with uh, with criticism and so on. One of the things, though, that, that I know uh, people who consider themselves to be purist football men uh, who who take that kind of gleeful malice in uh, or in in, in watching or, or you know seeing Ireland the Irish rugby team fail. One of the things that annoys them is this idea of media bias. I think what you just said there. It is is an important point for people to sometimes be aware of that actually it's a lot. Rugby does tend to make itself a bit more accessible. Yeah, but hold on a second, Ken. Ireland had did have their Euro twenty twelve moment. That was in two thousand seven, and they were absolutely pillory left, right, and centre. People making up stories about players with all these different issues. Everything, all these things going on in the background. Who was making up stories? What do you mean? Who was making up stories? These were being. These are massively widespread rumors at the circulated time. Circulated on, on the internet. Which, which newspaper was going with them? They weren't. Which they newspaper? Weren't. What, well, what, what, what? well, I thought we were talking about the media here. We were talking about the media. What? what? The media doesn't now count people online. People, no, well, of course not. The media is like, I mean, that's... Well, what the we, media was hammering them as well. Everybody, they were getting destroyed that, in that 2007 not, not, not by those stories that were going around. I mean, people were circulating stuff on email. Yeah, okay, that's, the rumors that's, that's, that's was the, the, rumors was the far criticism. extent of it. You don't think the, play, the players were criticised by the media in 2007? Well, I mean, if they hadn't been criticised by the media in 2007, we'd have had to wonder what the media was doing in 2007. I mean, is it, you know, is, should everybody just be issued with a set of pom-poms and, and a little... No, of course. And a leotard. But they weren't. But this is the point. This isn't... I don't think it's... We're comparing like with like if we're talking about year 2012 when the Irish players were absolutely hammered by everybody and this World Cup, which has ended terribly, but featured one of the biggest moments, what looked like it could be one of the biggest moments in a long time with the win over France. I know that's totally uh, redundant at this stage because it didn't take us any further. But when the Irish team did have their Euro 2012 and 2007, they were getting criticised. Yeah. Well. Sorry, uh, Dion. Well, what was the purpose of the win against France? What was the, why was there such celebration about the win against France? Because it was a big win in the World Cup and they got us through to the quarterfinals and we avoided New Zealand. Well, they were through to the quarterfinals and they beat Italy. Yeah, and we avoided New Zealand and thought we'd have a better chance but, against Argentina. No, I'm not. I'm not arguing that the that win. Would you, would you would you think then that maybe there was a little bit too much of an overreaction? Like if you were Argentina, oh yeah, if you were Argentina and you saw Ireland celebrating yeah. wildly uh, at the prospect of meeting Argentina, what would you think about that? I agree with that, and I, I have to say, uh, actually, the front page of your own newspaper, the Sunday Independent, the front page of the sports section yesterday um, had. The, the headline was something like um, Johnny Sexton's World Cup future in doubt. You know, and the story was, in fairness, from a news point of view, it was the story. Johnny Sexton's out of this game and might be out of any further game. But I was so, somewhat taken aback that this, that the entire front page story in the sports section is about a player missing a future game. I, I, I'd agree with you there that there was, a, there was definitely a sense that even with all the injuries, we were nearly having to convince ourselves the, as Irish people that uh, this is going to be a bit of a challenge against Argentina. Well, I saw Argentina play uh, New Zealand in, in, at Wembley, and you know, and I, I don't watch a lot of rugby, and I watched it, and I thought they were a pretty, 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 pretty amazing in that game. And I actually, you know, I did say it to a couple of people that this is this is, looks like a team that, you know, from the little I'd watched Ireland, it seems like a team that Ireland shouldn't be necessarily. Obviously, it's better than if you're playing New Zealand, who will probably win the tournament, but certainly a, a, a little bit of. Uh, <laughs> kind of awareness of, of what is coming. Maybe Euro 2012 isn't the correct... Maybe the sort of England football team or something is the, is the kind of correct analogy, or, uh, or Arsenal or somebody like that, who, who kind of uh, build themselves up into something and then, uh, you know, they kind of swing wildly from game to game, like, like, like the England football team at the World Cup, and they can kind of... Uh, 
persist with it or, or carry through with it. Because with, with the football team, it's not just about results, though, Dion, really. I, I know a lot is made of this idea that they're not loved and the connection isn't the same, but you know, they're, they're, they look like they were being loved by everybody at the Aviva Stadium a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I think, well, I, I think they're, they're totally different. Uh, they're totally different competitions, and they're both, they're, the two teams are competing at, at, at wildly different levels. Like, that is, that is the point, and that's, that's fine. Like, the competition that, you know, Ireland's, Ireland's, uh, Ireland's kind of annual rugby competition isn't, is, 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 isn't of the same standard as what Ireland are asked to do when they're in the fo- football when they, when they try and qualify for a World Cup or a European Championship. And I think if there is a comparison, it's when you say Ireland have never got past the quarterfinal stage in a Rugby World Cup, which is the kind of bare minimum considering the amount of teams uh, that play the game professionally. Uh, you would think that if you're going to kind of be, be, be seen as a success, surpassing that, getting past that stage would be the kind of the minimum requirement. Anything else is just kind of what's expected from you. Uh, but I do think, I think the Ireland... I, 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 say, I think the Irish football team does struggle, and as I said, some of it I think is 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 of their own making. And then there is this regard, this sense of oh, professional footballers, and uh, they're all highly paid, and they don't really care. Now, some of the marketability of the Irish rugby team is because they are, in a, in a, in a sense, where the Irish football team were under kind of Jack Charlton, when you know opening kind of doing sort of promotional work in Ireland was kind of a great boost to your income. Uh, and I've talked to advertising people who say they can't get any Irish footballer to do anything, and you know, the Irish rugby team are very willing to do things. And that might, you know, you, you could look at that and say that's because they, they care more about their community, or else you could say, well, to an Irish rugby player, doing ads and doing those kind of things has more impact for them than it does for an Irish footballer. And if an Irish rugby player was in the same financial position as an Irish footballer, they'd probably behave the same way. So it's... it's uh, it's a, you know, there are a number of factors, but I do think there is a distance, uh, I, and I see it, and I, I think it, I think it's understandable in some ways because of the uh, the proximity people have towards the, towards the rugby team and the lack of knowledge about you know a number of a number of the Irish football team. I agree with you. When Ireland beat Germany, they are being lauded, uh, but as I say, I think the FAI then go and kind of you know score an own goal by by just cancelling all media. When you think put give give put Shane Long up for ten minutes. On Friday, and you'd have the national. He'd be on the nine o'clock news. He'd be everywhere, uh, and that kind of thing. Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe the only thing that matters is they get a day off training. But I think it does. It does. Uh, unfortunately, I would like to see as, as a as somebody who covers football. I would like to see them kind of seizing those moments. Brilliant. All right, Dion. Excellent stuff as always. Thanks a million. Thanks, guys. If there is, a, I don't know, a lack of vitriol, or a, maybe if there's a gentle reaction to the Irish team being knocked out. Ken, do you think it's something to do with all the injuries? If it was a fully, if it was a fully fit Irish team with all our best players in it, and we've been beaten soundly like that, maybe it might be a little bit more cutthroat. The reaction, yeah. I mean, it's 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 frustrating. I think when you kind of get the sense that you've been knocked out without really being able to put your best team forward. Um, you know, you've lost the decisive game without your best team. Um, you don't think 2007, you don't think the 2012 Euros and the 2007 no, I don't World think Cup I don't comparison think I made be is, compared. No, because, is no, because because the equivalent of, of the 2007 World Cup for Ireland was not the Euros, which which was the culmination of a successful, a difficult and successful qualification. Uh, and then we kind of 
I think the 2007 World Cup was more akin to the attempt to qualify for the Euros in 2008 when we lost to Cyprus and, you know, we, we were a disgrace. And, it, you know, it was, one of, it was the worst, the worst qualifying anyone could remember. Like, the team underperformed in almost every game and it was a disaster. But I don't remember the Muppets uh, running around after Eddie O'Sullivan at Ireland's training ground. You know what I mean? So, the, so that was the difference in tone, I think. You know? Yeah, I, I take that. But Eddie O'Sullivan was criticised heavily. He, was, he did lose his job w within a year, within the, the a, following year. a number of months. But you know, largely based on the pressure that grew on him from those performances. He'd been given a four-year contract. But it couldn't be any other way, though. After It couldn't be any no, other no, way. No, no, but the reason I'm bringing it in... I mean, Stan had a four-year contract, But the reason I brought in this conversation is that I, 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 I saw this conversation developing where it, sound, it sounded as though we were saying that the rugby team never get criticised, mm -hmm. that the rugby coaches never get criticised, and that the soccer, soccer lads get slaughtered no matter what they do, which obviously... Isn't, I'm not saying that's what Dion said, yeah. but uh, you know, it just needs to be a little bit of balance. One thing I'll say is... Matt Williams, Matt Williams was in here last week and he, he sent something that I think you and Dion are talking about here that when you start criticising the players in particular nobody wants to hear it mm. and there's a bit of a shut down mentality on that kind of criticism he was talking about Jared Payne and just uh, talking about him as a rugby player there's nothing personal about it he was just saying he, had, he has limitations and felt he was playing badly kicking too much these kind of things and he was heavily criticised about that by the players by Jared Payne's teammates, which I think is fair enough. They're going to rally around him. Ex-players had a go. Gara and a couple of others had a pretty big go at him. And he kind of feels it's not a healthy situation that you can't actually criticise players. Without well, on the, on the one hand, I mean, that shows uh, a kind of admirable team spirit, let's say, from the uh, rugby fraternity who, are, you know, if you include ex-players, that they're kind of saying, no, you know, if they want to stick up for that. I mean, Gordon Darcy wrote about Jared Payne being Ireland's second most important player, I think. And I mean, his, I think his was an informed view. It wasn't just the case of, oh, no, Matt Williams, you have done your research. You know what I mean? It was a case, it was a case of, I have, and this is why I think Jared Payne is good. But, you know, I mean, uh, and again, I think criticising a popular team is not a, a high road to popularity either. But, you know, it shouldn't matter. You should be prepared to, to do that if you think that that's the truth, if that's what your job is. You know what I mean? In Matt Williams' capacity as a as a pundit or an analyst on the Irish rugby team, if he's, you know, if he says that, he has to expect that the reaction isn't going to be good. Um, but that doesn't mean, um, that doesn't mean that, that he's wrong to say it, you know? I mean, I, I think the interesting thing about this team, the, I think the really interesting thing is actually the position of Schmidt, because he, um, there's some question marks, I think, about what he did in the, in the World Cup, but it's, He's got such an elevated status here. What, are, what he reminds me a little bit of is Rafael Benitez at Liverpool when he was uh, maybe 2007, 2008, that sort of period. Um, his initial brilliant success, you know, because Schmidt has won two Six Nations. That's for, for Ireland, if you look in historic terms, that's a, a fantastic level of success. Um, similarly, Benitez at Liverpool had won big trophies in his first two seasons. And I think there was a... He, he, he developed an almost aura of infallibility. Mm. You know, people were like, wow, you know, uh, this guy is, is, is just incredible. You know, he's a genius. He's a genius. He's based on the Heineken Cups with Leinster as well. That, and so, yeah, so there's no disputing Schmidt's record of, uh, of brilliant achievement. You can't dispute that. But 
there there are questions there are things that he did here it's almost as though his his authority from those past successes is so great that any any decision of his is kind of accepted as well it must have been the right thing to do well I don't know this is going to develop because this is the kind of thing that you end up talking about for more than just one day we're just in the mm. media day afterwards uh, I don't know specifically what decisions you're talking about well why is Luke Fitzgerald not on the team for instance because Dave Carney's played really really well and Tommy Ball was a world class player who he was hoping would find form I mean I would probably have Luke Fitzgerald in the team but should Keane Healy have been playing instead of McGrath? I mean, Keane Healy played for 45 minutes or 50 minutes and Jack McGrath played for half an hour. You know, it's and like, if if Jack McGrath had started, Keane Healy would have been on after 30 minutes. I, it's not the winning or losing of the game. I'd have had Sean Cronin on the bench, for example, particularly with Keane Healy. Not, I don't think Keane Healy was fully fit through the entire tournament, but without going into every single decision. Yeah, because we do another whole podcast. Podcast to, to do a lot of that. I do think... I do think it's right that he's... he's. Uh, I don't think he should be above criticism at all, uh, the, mm. which is not what I want to say. But it is right that he's done so much. Where we have been very lucky to have this man through the confluence of events, coaching in our country and leading both... Uh, w- one of our leading provinces to all the success and, our, and Ireland to all the success. So, okay, maybe he has made some mistakes. He probably made some mistakes in those... Uh, all coaches do. Yeah. And Warren Gatton, all these top guys don't get it right all the time but I don't think his coaching is the reason that we were knocked out of the World Cup Yeah, I think it was largely the fact that we had a, he- a hell of a lot of injuries and the players couldn't fully implement his game plan there was a lot of precision required uh, as there always is with his game plans within within reason and they just couldn't do it for whatever reason they didn't bring it I don't I, I don't think um, you necessarily blame Schmidt but we have got a whole other programme to talk to to talk about uh, trash out those issues Jonathan Wilson's already talked to us about Jurgen Klopp Jonathan, another highly rated coach, um, there's, and there's certainly a bit of a, an air of something around him. Infallibility might be the right word, but there's certainly an aura around Klopp. And you were there at White Hart Lane to see his first game for Liverpool, this draw against Tottenham. Did you see anything where you thought, you know, this is what he's going to be trying to do with this team? Yeah, I mean, I think their effort in the first, certainly the first 25 minutes or so, I think was was quite astonishing. That you know, the, the pace at which they were they were flying at the challenges. Yeah, people like Emre Chan, Adam Lallana, who you maybe don't think of as being the, the the most robust or combative, you know, really kind of flying in to, to close people down. And, and although they, they fell off towards the end of the first half and the second half, it was, it was much more measured, uh, they still outran Tottenham, which, you know, given the, the widespread perception that Mr. Pochettino's teams are the fittest in the league, I think is a pretty healthy sign. Now, obviously, it's one thing to do that for, for a single game. Whether that has a knock-on effect coming the Europa League, coming game against Southampton next weekend, and, and, and um, further on into the season when they haven't had a, a Klopp-style preseason, then, then you know I, I guess we have to see about that. But but saying that energy in closing people down suggested that his personality, um, his you know, his charisma had had given everybody a boost. But I mean, in terms of anything tactical, I think you know you, it's a long, it takes a long time to to impose a new pattern on a side. And Pochettino was actually very interesting talking about that after the game. He was saying that he was surprised when he got to Southampton how quickly he was able to, to impose his ideas. And he said it took a lot longer at Spurs. So I guess up to a point, it, just, it depends what kind of structure has been left behind by Brendan Rodgers. That's not even necessarily meaning a, you know, the quality of that structure, but just how different it is to what, what Klopp wants to do. Uh, how is it different from what Pochettino has been trying to do with, you know, res- respectable, but not exactly outstanding results with Tottenham? I don't think it is hugely different. Um, I think Pochettino's problem uh, this season is they've got a lack of depth up front and the fact Harry Kane... I mean, I think Harry Kane actually played pretty well on Saturday. Um, but the fact he's, for whatever reason, not scoring goals, that 
that that means they're drawing games that they ought to win. And you know, they've I th- they lost at United on the first day, and then they've unbeaten in eight since. But I think five of those have been draws. So it would only take a couple of those draws to to have been turned to wins by you know brilliant finish or or you know an Ericsson free kick or something like that. And they they would suddenly look you know, pretty serious challenges for the top four. Whereas at the moment you still sort of feel like well, they're just building towards it. So. I mean, it seems, it seems to say there's about so many teams this season. But I think for, for what Tottenham really lack is a, is a top-class centre-forward and they're just sort of waiting for Kane to, to start scoring again. Mm. I have to say that, uh, I mean, I was as impressed as you were by this uh, almost frenzied uh, work ethic that Liverpool displayed. But I also remember seeing Philippe Coutinho in the couple of minutes before he was substituted just staggering around the field in a way that I've never seen him in, in a way which is very you very rarely see in a Premier League match. I mean, the kind of thing that maybe you might have seen in the 1986 World Cup towards the end of a really blisteringly hot extra time period, this was not a promising indication. I mean, I don't mean to pick on Coutinho, but he's actually one of the more mobile players. I don't think his stamina, has never, his stamina hasn't really been questioned before. It's just that I don't understand how players are going to be expected to, to do that also, every you, four if days. Also, if you do this to... Too quickly. If you get these guys to run an extra kilometer per person too quickly, um, is that not inviting injuries and fatigue at the very least? Yeah, I, I think it is. I think that's the the balancing act he's got to strike. I mean, I guess maybe your first game, you sort of think, well, let's go full throttle. You know, to use the word he keeps on using, but let's go full throttle here. And it is against Spurs, so this is actually a real test of, of just how fit they are. Um, but I mean. I, I suspect that it's going to. It's not going to be long before Klopp starts saying, "Well, you know, they're not as fit as I would like them." And, and for you know, most managers, most new managers come in. You know, it's a regular thing for them to say. Most new managers who come in, it's a bit of an excuse. I suspect in this instance, then it's actually true. They're not as fit as Klopp would like them. Having said that, you kind of suspect that no team would be as fit as Klopp would like them, apart from his, his Dortmund. So, you know, I, I think one of the one of the worries about Klopp. Um, yeah, having having seen that first press conference and everything and all the hype, and you sort of thought, well, is, is that just us in the media sort of building it up? And then um, I, I was outside White Hart Lane when the Liverpool bus arrived, and there was people pressed up against the metal railings to take photographs of him getting off a bus you know, 40 yards away. Uh, there was, I counted, 23 photographers around him when he when he walked out of the tunnel to take his place on the bench. All those banners, you know, via Glauben, you know, this sort of messianic sort of immediately hailing him. And you sort of did sort of think, you know, this is this is Christ coming in Jerusalem. This is this is the the palm fronds and the, and the hosannas. And you, you sort of worry that people are expecting too much too soon. That you've got to remember, it 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 took time for Klopp at, at Dortmund to to win anything. It takes time to impose his model, and it's certainly going to take take time for the, to get the players as fit as he wants them to play the way where he wants to play. Yeah, and I don't know if anyone really is going to be fit enough to play that way. I mean, Dortmund used to have plenty of injuries. Um, and you know burnout problems in the second half of the season. That was after a winter break, so I think it's going to be it's going to be difficult to make that really fly in the Premier League. But just in terms of that mania you were talking about there, I saw Gary Neville's column in the Daily Telegraph where he was complaining about this, and he um, he actually traced it to kind of lack of self esteem of English football. That it, you know, oh, you wouldn't get this if a German manager went to Spain and all, and all this kind of stuff. I mean, why? What do you think is happening there? What is it about this guy that people seem so um, enthused about? Because he, he, he obviously is a kind of a superstar. I think in a way beyond 
uh, that uh, kind of beyond in, in any way that could be justified by what he's, he's actually achieved. Impressive though his achievements are, um, there, there's a kind of a, well, you know, what do you think is actually happening there when you got 23 photographers and people pressed against ratings while he's getting off a bus, you know, 40 feet away? Well, I think there's a, there's a few things that have come together. I, I think the English football, maybe British football, has, you know, we, we deify the manager more than any other football culture. Uh, and I think part of the reason for that is that, yeah, the, the, the popular football in consciousness in, in, in England, you can you can probably trace to the start of, of Match of the Day in 1964. Then that was when you got a, a mass televisual culture um, that, that starts to care about football. And you know, who, who were the great figures in football then? Shankly, Busby, Reevee, you know, Clough would, would, would arrive slightly later. And they were these sort of big, charismatic, messianic people. And Shankly played on a messianic thing. And you know, he was able to ride that, that great wave of cultural production out of Liverpool. And, and he was able to sort of divert that to, to his own footballing ends. And he, he had a big enough personality to, to sort of handle that. You still got to remember, it took Bill Shankly three and a half years to get promoted with Liverpool. Never win, mind win the championship. Three and a half years to get promoted. So it doesn't matter how messianic the figure is. It, it, these things take time. So that, that, that's why... You know, it's a concerning uh, feature, but I think Liverpool fans, you know, the the the, the Shankly Paisley model, they're they're looking to replicate, and that's understandable. When when were they successful? When they had this this great, um, you know, charismatic leader, and although Paisley almost was a was an anti messiah in, in his sort of downbeatness, but the fact that he came straight after Shankly was almost as if it was a, a deliberate reversal of policy. So by the absence of a messiah itself, kind of created the notion of a messiah figure. Um, but I think there's something else goes on that's a bit strange with with Liverpool, which is when when Julio was there. I mean, maybe to a lesser extent with Julio, but when Julio was there, you sort of got this mass importation of a of a French culture. You had French players arrived, and and sort of you saw tricolours on the cop. With Benitez, certainly you saw you know, Spanish players arrive and all these Spanish flags on the cop and and sort of Spanish songs. And now it appears there's sort of this this arrival of a German culture and. Yeah, there's, there's uh, German flags with, with Klopp's face on. And, and I wonder if the reason for this, there was, was one banner that said, um, I think it said Jürgen's Reds, Scouse nicht English. So this idea of Liverpool as, a, as an area of England that's not English, that's somehow remote, and therefore it's, it's a vacuum into which other cultures can, 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 uh, can be adopted. And I wonder if that's the reason why there is this sort of wholesale, OK, we, we, we're German now. Uh, and I, I think that I think Gary Neville's right. I think there is a, a strange lack of self-esteem about English football at times. That you know we're getting all excited by Gagan pressing, and, and up to a point, fair enough. But pressing was first done here. You know, Victor Maslow did it at Dynamo Kiev, but it was England who won the World Cup with pressing. And just because we haven't sort of carried that forward, we didn't trust our intellectual instincts. We had this this radical way of playing. You know, Ramsey's England were in the avant-garde of tactics at the time, and okay, it might have seemed a bit staid and a bit, a bit unexciting compared to. Catanaccio or total football but it was ours and it worked but we we haven't sort of made that more sophisticated we haven't used computer modeling to see if well would we be better blocking the passing lanes than, than marking players there, there seems to have been you know it, it's become more sophisticated in, in the, the German and, and Guardiola's version of it and, and we're now sort of being sold back a game that we really should have developed ourselves given where we were, were in the 80s Jonathan, just before we let you go, we obviously Ireland have been drawn against Bosnia. Um, the away leg is going to be first. I think we see we've we seem to be re- reasonably content with that draw. I don't think anyone wanted to play Zlatan, even though the Swedish team isn't isn't actually great. But what do you think? Uh, who would you be betting on there? 
I think that's that's going to be really tight. Um, I think I marginally favour Bosnia, but I mean it, by a tiny margin, purely because I, th- I think there's a there's a real sense behind them that they've sorted out the problems they had. That they I think what they won five of the last six. I think you yeah, had a terrible start to qualifying, took two points from the first four games, lost at home to Cyprus, but since Bazdarevic has come in to play Sisic, there's, there's been sort of a, a sense of lift off. Uh, I think there's real momentum behind them now. And, and then the other thing that they, they, they talk about in Bosnia, um, they, they sort of sense that this is this is predestined that, that Bazdarevic, um as a as a player, he he played I think fifty two times for Yugoslavia, well yeah fifty odd times for Yugoslavia, and he missed out on the World Cup in nineteen ninety because he was suspended having having spat the linesman and going into Turkey. He then missed out in year ninety two as as all of Yugoslavia missed out in year ninety two because they were they were expelled because of the war. So there's this sense that this is his fulfilment that that you know twenty four years or, or twenty two years on, um, yeah, he he will get to the the, the finals that, that he was due then, and the, the thing that's been sort of projected from him is that in 1979 he was on a plane going from uh, Japan to Belgrade, and he met this airline stewardess who, who he very much liked, and he chatted to her, but he, he never actually asked her out, and he sort of regretted that, and then the following year. He was on a flight from Tunisia back to Belgrade and met the same stewardess, and this time he did ask her out, and they're now married. So the idea is Bazdarevic is a man who, you know, he's this patient man who waits and eventually fulfilment comes to him. <laughs> and they're getting to these finals, you know, uh, 22 years late. Uh, will be the payoff that he that he got in 1980 when when he, he finally asked his wife out. All right, well, I wasn't expecting that story exactly, Jonathan, but <laughs> that's perfect for us, isn't it? Thanks a million, great stuff. Cheers, thanks. All right, I'm a little bit worried now, I've got to say. Go on. Well... I hadn't done much. I was I was a bit preoccupied with the rugby over the weekend, over the last few days. Mm-hmm. So I hadn't really studied Bosnia's form too closely. And I had heard that they had that bad defeat against Cyprus. So I thought, well, they're, they're just crap. Yeah, Who loses to Cyprus? Exactly. <laughs> What's self-respecting football nation ever loses to Cyprus? Yeah. But um, yeah, if they've won five of the last six games, it would make me think that maybe that early defeat to Cyprus isn't relevant at all. No, it's not. It, we're, we're, we're thinking, say, okay, it's not exactly a fair comparison, but or Euro 96 playoff against Holland. I mean, they were in the playoffs. Nah. But like, no, no, but you know what I mean? It, it, the, actually, forget about that. You know, I'm going to scratch that entire thought because that makes no sense. No. <laughs> we, we, but I am worried. In case you haven't noticed, Stone, the Republic of Ireland finished the qualifying process with the momentum of a runway freight train. A uh, freight train, which at the very end careened right off the, the end, bridge yeah. <laughs> and into the canyon. But nevertheless, a train. Uh, we beat Germany, in case you hadn't noticed. We beat Gibraltar. We harvested a lot of points. We've got two wins, three wins in our last four matches in these qualifiers. So all I'm saying is, uh, you know, Bosnia, there's going to be two teams in this game and Bosnia are only one of those teams. That is true. All right, we've got, uh, oh, just to let you know, on Wednesday we are going to be bringing, we'll be podcasting our Sugar Club show. So that's on Wednesday night, so we'll have it for you on Thursday morning. And that's Wednesday, October 21st. Brian Kerr, amongst others, is going to be there. Brian Kerr, always a crowd pleaser at these kind of events, I think. And our Rugby World Cup post-mortem, as we flagged, will be later today. That's Monday, if you're listening. We'll include Scott and Australia chatting that, by the way. Absolutely st- staggering end to that game and a huge amount of fallout in Scotland in particular from all of that. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening to this podcast. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Ken. Thanks, Murph. You can follow us on Twitter at Second Captains. You can also um, follow facebook.com forward slash Second Captains. We'll talk to you later on. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.